And I'll ask you to take your Bibles and turn once again to 1 Corinthians 15. Today we'll try to make it through the rest of the chapter. It might be a little ambitious, but I have reason to think we can do it. I wanted to bring this up today, and I wasn't sure at what point to bring it up, but this morning when I saw it, I, I wanted to mention it. Um, each uh, Sunday morning I uh, jump on um, the internet and I check to make sure there's no major events or things that happen through the night that I shouldn't be oblivious to when I walk into church as a pastor on Sunday morning, make sure that, you know, we're not suddenly at war with someone and I don't, I'm the one who doesn't know it or someone, you know, someone has, has died or done something that I'm going to be asked about. And uh, it's a brief time, but, um, but I do jump on the internet and, and I check. And uh, this morning when I turned my phone on, uh, there was a notification from a name that I didn't uh, recognize. And uh, I am on Twitter. I don't do anything on Twitter. I, I have like 10, 15 followers. So whoever you are, thank you. Uh, although it wouldn't matter to me if you weren't there at all. Because again, I don't do anything on there. Uh, but uh, I do uh, follow uh, some different news sources on there. But I, I recognize someone that I didn't follow. And it uh, turns out that her thing showed up, her post showed up because of uh, someone who I do follow reacting to it. And, um, you know, I won't give you her name, but it's a picture of just the cutest little girl that you would, that you could imagine. And uh, it reminds me of, of uh, my own little girls, right around one years old. Um, she turned one on December 31st of this, this last December, so just uh, one years old. But the message with her picture says, uh, Lottie is with Jesus. She passed in her sleep last night. Please pray for our family. She was a gift. And it's a, a perfectly healthy child and uh, died from sudden infant death syndrome. When you put your baby to sleep at night and the next morning they are not there. And uh, thousands of infants every year die inexplicably without blame, without fault, without explanation, without symptom, without disease. Thousands of children die that way every year. And, um, of course, we would expect the family to be devastated by something like that because death is a devastating thing. It robs a person of everything that they have. There's a, a, a famous movie line, death is, you know, a, a, a wild thing. It takes away everything that a man has and everything that he's ever going to have. And that's a Clint Eastwood line for those of you who uh, have a certain upbringing like I did. But it's true. It is, it's not just a robbery, it's, an, it's a total robbery. It, it, it is an awful thing. And death in the scripture is always described to us as an enemy. It's never just a natural thing. That's how the world often talks about death is just something natural, circle of life, you know, the Lion King and Simba being held up there, you know. And, and we shouldn't, you know, we should just understand that death is a natural part of thing and that's not how the scripture speaks of death. Death is an enemy. It's... It's brought on by a curse. It was instigated by a liar and a murderer in the beginning. And Jesus came into the world to defeat death. 
He came into the world to save us from death. And I was encouraged by a mother's response at such a tragedy. I'm encouraged in the scriptures by the responses of those like Job who in the midst of losing their children uh, say, naked I came into the world and naked I will return. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Um, I am encouraged as I watch my own family go through deaths and as I watch many of your families go through deaths that we have a real hope. And our real hope is not the fairy tale, pixie dust, pie in the sky hope of so many Eastern religions or spiritual sentiments. Our hope is in a risen Savior. Our hope is in a God who became flesh to defeat death, to bodily defeat death, who has paved the way in a bodily resurrection for us to also defeat death, and who has promised us, not just given us a good idea or a wishful thinking, but who has laid his integrity on the line to promise us a bodily resurrection if we by faith receive him as our Lord and Savior. So it is not a foolish thing that we're about here in 1 Corinthians 15. And that is what Paul has spent so much time talking about. This is not a sentimental thing. This is not some sleep easy at night thing. This is serious business. And that's why we've taken so much time in it. Now I want to read now beginning in verse 35. And part 1 of today's sermon we'll read through verse 41. And we'll take it in one big set. Verse 35 Paul says... But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what body do they come? Now, this is like the mocking voice, those who don't believe in a resurrection from the dead. How are the dead raised? You know, explain the mechanics. With what body are they raised? In other words, this is what someone might, these are the kind of mocking questions someone might ask if they don't believe and they're really trying to put the screws to someone who says they believe in a resurrection. Oh yeah, explain it to me. It's not totally different from, oh yeah, how did Jesus walk on water? How did Jesus feed the 5,000? Explain to me the mechanics. Well, it's not about, you know, biological mechanics. It's about the power of God. And that's where Paul is going to turn. Paul says, foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. So the, his first example is a farming metaphor. In other words, you take, and those of you who garden might appreciate this, you take a bag of seed, you take a bag of grains, it could be wheat or some other grain, as, as uh, Paul says here, and you put it in the ground, and that shell that contains all of the building blocks of what will be, that shell breaks away and decays and dies. And what springs up of it is the determinate will of God. God has chosen already in creation to give us lots of examples of something appearing this way and then dying and decomposing and some unexpected miraculous form of life springing up from that little dead and decaying thing. And so you're saying that the jewel of God's creation, man made in his own image as the Bible would tell us, 
he has no plan for or he's incapable of doing something like that. Our very existence depends on eating food that comes from the burying of tiny decomposing shells in the ground and miraculous life springing forward. And you're telling me you've got to, you, you, you accept that, that's just fine, but you, you're somehow amazed that God might have some plan for men and women created in God's image? So it's Paul's mocking, mocking the man. In verse 39, all flesh is not the same flesh. <laughs> Which we know that all flesh, he means all bodies are not the same. You know, there's, there's one kind of flesh for men and another for animals, another of fish and another of birds. What he's saying here is God has demonstrated in creation that he makes things in different kinds. You know, you're mocking by saying, what body will you have in the resurrection? Well, it's a different kind. That's what you're going to have, you know. And you can see this all throughout creation. God creates in different kinds. Should it shock you that you're going to have a different kind of body when you raise from the dead? Of course you're not. I'm not going to rise from the grave with this skin. This is going to, like the shell, rot away and die. This is not going to be there. If you've ever seen archaeology photos, you see the, the remains and all that's left and you don't see skin and, and fingernails and you don't, you see chipped away you know, nearly, you know, gone bones. That's it. Sometimes just the fossil, uh, the, just the, 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 the presentation, the, some sort of presentation, preservation of a bone. So of, you're mocking saying like, well, how is God going to bring this flesh? Well, you're going to be resurrected. It's going to be a different kind of body, not the exact same one. See, Paul is mocking them for their mocking of God here. This is common stuff God creates in different kinds. In verse 40, there are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. In other words, there are bodies, there are, there are things in the sky, and then there are things on the earth. You know, and we see the same God who makes things in the sky as the God who makes things on the earth. And he says, but the glory of the celestial one and the glory of the terrestrial one is, is another. In other words, if you look at a person and you say, ah, oh, that person is pretty, that person is handsome, that person is strong, that person, you know, the, the glory of a human being is one thing and it's completely different from the celestial bodies that God has made where the glory is completely different. You know, you, you don't look at the sun and say, boy, it's very strong. In other words, you get give glory to it, it, get, it's re, it reveals God's glory in a completely different way. So why should it surprise you that God would do something very different in a different kind of resurrected body for human beings? You know, because you could hear someone saying, well, you know, it, what, what is my resurrection body going to look like? Am I going to be just as handsome or more handsome? Am I going to be just as strong or more strong? What age am I going to be? Am I going to be able to do this or am I going to be able to do this? And you're like, you're, you're judging your own body by a standard of glory that isn't even consistent in all of creation. In other words, the glory that we, the, the way we measure the greatness or the glory of something in human beings is totally different from the way we measure the glory of something in the heavens. And you're saying you can predictively, you know, try to judge whether or not you're going to have glory in the resurrection. It's a totally different thing. That's what he's getting at. He says there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, and one differs from another star in glory. He's talking about the light that, that you see when you look up in the sky. It's, it, and again, it's the diversity of God's creative power here. 
It's, you know, you are only looking at the body you have now and trying to mock and ridicule because you don't think that this particular body is coming back to life. Well, God, God does amazing things in creation all the time. And he's not bound by your understanding of your human anatomy when it comes to the creative resurrected body that you're going to have. You're not going to have the same body. <laughs> Jesus didn't die on the cross to give you the same body. You're not going to have the same body. It's going to be different. And the glory of it is going to be different. It's not going to be the same. I think if I was to summarize part 1 here in verses 35 and 41, as Paul is dealing with skepticism on the resurrection by pointing to the creative power of God. That's what I would call this, the creative power of God. Just look at what God has done in creation. You cannot be a skeptic when it comes to what God will do in the resurrection if you just open your eyes to creation around you. He is not bound by any little box or parameter. Saying that you don't believe in the resurrection because you don't see how this body is going to be brought back to life is missing the creative work of God around you all the time. Now he's going to carry this on to the next section. Look at verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. So we're given four statements here. Now, Bible commentaries go to great lengths to try to specifically categorize each of these four. What I can say is all four statements are clearly true and probably have more than one basic meaning. But we can get some basic meanings from each of them. Look at the first statement he makes. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. Now corruption is not a word that we use all the time. Uh, if we'd use the word corruption, we're usually talking about uh, in some institution. You know, we might talk about, you know, this institution is corrupt or this organization is corrupt. But what Paul is using the word corruption to mean is your body is corrupt. In other words, it has fundamental flaws that are causing it to break down, which is what happens in a corrupt organization. Corrupt organization is an organization that is being ruined, that is flawed from within. And what he's saying here is your body, what you've got, is fundamentally flawed and corrupt. And it's going to be sown in that corruption. Now what does he mean sown? Well he's going back to the farming metaphor. It's going to be buried and put into the ground. In that decaying, corruptive state. The resurrection of your body is not the restoration of the corrupted body you have now. It's sown in corruption. It will be raised in incorruption. The body that you get which we know will be of a different kind. We know it will be of a different glory, but the body that you get in the resurrection will be a real body, incorruptible. It will not be aging and breaking down and deteriorating. Which, you know, this is where science is really 
um, this, the study of anatomy and human biology is really fascinating and has given us insight into understand, understanding more and more about exactly what is happening in our bodies about how there is a specific genetic code that is unique to each one of us. And, and when we age and when we break down, it's most of the time the effects of the world around us, radiation and other things, causing mutations in our genetic code. And you know, God has made our bodies so miraculous that our bodies have a way of dealing with those mutations and reconciling back to the right <laughs> back to the right DNA and yet nevertheless over time and the the millions and billions and trillions of mutations some of those get through and they cause things like cancer <laughs> they cause things like the death of cells or the mutation of cells and we experience this kind of oblivious and we just look in the mirror one day and we say, I used to have hair there or this is a spot I've never seen before or this is a bump I've never had before. And we're somewhat oblivious to all of it and yet trillions of this happening all the time in each of us. And it speaks to the inevitability of your body breaking down and ruining. <laughs> and there's nothing you can do to stop it. There's little you can do to slow it down substantially. Think about the great progress we think we've made in medicine. That we've added, what, a couple of decades to someone's life over the last thousand years? Something like that? Say it's like four or five decades. We think, wow, what an achievement. Four or five decades in the grand scheme of things? <laughs> That's not much time. Your body is corrupt and corruptible and failing and vulnerable. But the body that you get will be raised in incorruption. Verse 43, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. Now we could read dishonor as sin, which is true. Or we could read dishonor as in the general shame and humiliation that comes when one dies. Which is also true. I don't know which. Take your pick. Apply them both. That's what I would do. But your life now marked by sin will not be marked by sin in eternity. You right now are under the curse of Adam and you experience temptation and evil in ways that you will not experience it forever. And your body is also betraying you left and right. Doing less of what it used to do. Doing worse than it used to do. I think of uh, my grandfather with this one and the next one. The next one is it's sown in weakness. It is raised in power. You know, I think of both of my grand grandpas. One has died and gone on to be with the Lord. His body was bedridden from the time of his early 40s, which always makes me wonder as I approach 40. <laughs> um, his body was bedridden. He was, uh, in callous terms, a vegetable for decades and decades and decades of his life. And he lived in weakness and he was buried in weakness, but he was not a weak man. Fought in the Korean War 
worked as a operator and then a floor supervisor at General Motors for decades. He was not a weak man. He was not a frail man. But then he was. Think of my grandpa Morgan who has a real great tall stature uh, who could hit a softball 30-40 feet over any fence, who could hit a golf ball 270 yards when nobody hit a golf ball 270 yards. And I think of my grandpa now, praise the Lord we still have him, stooped and bent and in pain and being taken by the hand from place to place. This is the glory of the human body. <laughs> And all of you have your stories about those things too. And the, the cumulative testimony of all of us to these things could hardly be debated. It should be sobering. These bodies sown in weakness, raised in power. Your resurrection body will not be frail. It will not be deteriorating. It will not be weak. It will be of a different stuff. A different kind. And the fourth one that he puts, verse 44, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. I think we would better understand spiritual because when we think of spiritual, we think of ghost. I think we would better understand spiritual if in the, in the English translation we had it as sown, a natural body, it is raised a supernatural body. In other words, it will not be the kind of body that we observe in nature for human beings. You know, your natural body comes from the genetic contributions of two people. And we're finding out more and more before you ever breathe a breath of oxygen, a lot about it is already determined. <laughs> but the body that you will get is not the mere stuff of genetic material. It's not the mere stuff of molecules and cells in their natural interaction with biological material. The body that we get will be supernatural. It will be spiritual. It will be directly from the Lord. He goes on to explain this in verse 45. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. We understand the kind of body Adam had. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Now, we know when Jesus rose from the grave, he did not appear as some ethereal ghost. We know that. As a matter of fact, from the very first witness, he was mistaken for a real human being, for a, for a gardener. He ate with the disciples at different times. Ate fish, ate bread, honeycomb. He ate with the disciples. He challenged Thomas to put his Hands and fingers in his side. He was embraced outside the tomb. J Jesus was not, as we think of, a spirit. So what does it mean when it says that he became a life-giving spirit? It's talking about something physical, but something supernatural. That's what it means by spirit. Verse 46, however, the, the spiritual is not first. <laughs> 
but the natural. And afterward, the spiritual. There's an order to these things. The first man was of the earth, made of the dust. Like I said, biological material. But the second man is the Lord from heaven. This is like the superhero renditions of Superman. You know, the only way that Superman makes sense is it can't come from here. <laughs> you know, that's the idea here. Jesus did not derive his resurrected existence, his bodily resurrection from the dirt or from cells in the ground, from genetic material, from mom and dad. It is supernatural. As was the man of the dust, so also are those who are made of dust. That's you and I. Dust to dust, ashes to ashes. I don't know if you've ordered your headstone yet, but somebody will, or come up with some other means. The urn, the casket, the unmarked grave. Somewhere, somehow, the bottom of an ocean. I hope not. I don't want to go that way. I can, Ryan nodded. I can't, he likes sailing. I can't tell if he wants to go that way or... Or, or if he's agreeing, I don't want to go that way. He can tell me later. But that's your, that's your body's fate. There is no redeeming this. It is inevitable. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also those who are heavenly. Now that is the objective here. I know what happens to this body. I want the body from the Lord Jesus Christ. I know what happens to the natural. I want the supernatural. I have a father who gave me the natural. I want from my heavenly father the supernatural. Verse 49, And as we have borne the image of the man of the dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. So, Part two in that section I would call like Adam and then like Jesus. If the first section is the creative power of God, the second section is, look, you are all like Adam. And you have all who have faith in Jesus Christ been promised a life as Jesus. You, you are all physically of Adam, so you will all physically, not ghostly, physically be as Jesus. Final section, verse 50. Now, this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Your hope for eternity is not in flesh and blood. It is not in skin cells being fed from nutrients in blood vessels. You are... Um, this blood bag that I'm looking at here uh, is not for eternity. And that's what Paul is saying. This is not it. And that, honestly, that should take no convincing. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Um, now listen to the description here. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. What 
Paul is saying here is there will be people alive on the earth who have not died, who have not had their bodies sown into the ground, who will be changed. In other words, not every Christian will sleep. Not every Christian will die because the Lord Jesus is going to return triumphantly. And at his return, there will be a change for those who have died and for those who are alive on the earth at his return. So, you can all conclude with the, the writer of Revelation, with John and his last sentiment, even so, Lord Jesus, come. Be perfectly fine for me if the Lord returned this afternoon. I would not mind being caught up in the category of people who shall not all sleep. But he's speaking to a prophetical fact, to an eschatological fact. There will be those alive. On, Jesus is not going to return after everyone dies. He is going to return to a populated earth. And when he returns, not everybody's going to be dead, but everybody who is a follower of Jesus Christ will be changed. That's what verse 51 says. We shall all be changed. We're not all going to die before Jesus returns, but we will all be changed in a moment, instantaneously at the return of Jesus. In the twinkling of an eye, I've never seen an eye twinkle. It must happen fast. At the last trumpet. For the trump will sound. And the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed. Now this is the part where many people are going to say. Well when and how and in what order. Not my problem today. My goal today is to tell you. The Lord Jesus will return, and at His return, all of those who have faith in Him will instantaneously receive incorruptible, real resurrection bodies. Jesus was the first fruits of this incorruptible resurrection body, and He will return and fulfill all of God's promises to us, and we will be with the Lord forever. In fact, Paul is marveling at this in verse 53. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. Those who are alive at Jesus' return do not just get to walk into heaven with the body they have now. That is not an option. And this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, praise the Lord now, then we get this saying, here's the saying, Old death, where is your sting? Old Hades, where is your victory? The passage starts in verse 35 with the people mocking the resurrection. And their question is, well, how are the dead raised up? With what body do the dead uh, be resurrected to? That's the mocking. And the passage ends with Christians, with God, with the Lord Jesus Christ, mocking death itself. Oh, death where is your sting? All Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That should be an amen. Thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ.
if you're a Christian and someone dies and you find yourself mourning and some well-meaning Christian comes up to you and says, you shouldn't be mourning. You shouldn't be feeling bad. Jesus died on the cross. This person was with the Lord. There's nothing to feel bad about. I present to you Verse 55. When will we celebrate the defeat of death? When will we celebrate victory over the grave? At the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I celebrate the promises that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I don't get to go visit my grandpa at Christmas time. <laughs> Death is real. And I still feel it. <laughs> and this mom who is making arrangements today to bury a one-year-old still feels it. We have the assurance of victory. but <laughs> And we ought to celebrate the assurance of victory. But we are still experiencing the work of the enemy <laughs> of death. And man, does it hurt. And man, is it real. So don't feel some strange Christian obligation to throw a party every time somebody dies. Jesus knew he was going to see Lazarus again. He wept. Okay? Death is real. And it's terrible. But there is a victory coming over death and at that victory, at the return of Jesus Christ, death will never touch the Christian again. Not personally, not relationally, it will not touch the believer again. It will have no power. Not even the power of separation. Paul's conclusion in verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. That's the first command. Be steadfast. Now, he could mean steadfast in general as Christians. But I think in light of 1 Corinthians 15, he has specifically the resurrection in view. And when he says be steadfast, mean hold to the faith about the resurrection. Do not be moved. Do not be persuaded otherwise. Be steadfast. Immovable. Which is a reiteration of the same thing. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now you will remember in the middle of the chapter. Paul is saying, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then we are, of all people, most pitiable. Why? Because, like we read last week, he's fighting lions in Ephesus to work for the Lord. Whether metaphorically, and just dealing with mere men trying to stone him and imprison him and run him out of town and, and stripe his back with the whip, or whether actual beasts. That's what he gets in this world for his work for the Lord. But he ends the chapter with a great big therefore. Because of the victory that we have over the dead, be steadfast, be immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord, even if it means fighting lions in Ephesus and dying. 
always abounding in your labor, knowing that it is not in vain in the Lord. And this is the part that we have tried to circle around to challenge ourselves with over and over and over again. What you truly believe about your life, yes, but also your death will have inevitable and significant consequences in the way that you live. If you do not believe that the trump will sound and the Lord Jesus will descend and we will rise and the dead will rise and we will be forever changed in a moment as we celebrate victory over these awful circumstances we find ourselves in and I'm looking at my decaying body here. If you don't believe that, then you won't live for that. You'll live for the most comfortable, fulfilling personally pleasing life that you can have down here on the earth. You'll spend your money on those kinds of things. I mean, practically. You won't follow the counsel of Jesus and spend your money now to have friends forever in heaven. You won't be in pursuit of the gospel. You will not be giving all of your time and your energy towards things that will matter because you don't have the belief that those things will come to pass. Or if you do, it is merely kind of pie in the sky hopefulness, not rock solid belief that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. But if you believe that God is going to return and give you an everlasting inheritance and that he will reward every effort, if you believe that, then you'll live very differently. You'll live sacrificially. You'll live with an eye to a heavenly kingdom where you will have a heavenly body as opposed to an earthly kingdom and the earthly body that you have. Now, this, this is not my attempt to be your judge. And I know whenever I talk about how you spend your money or what you do with your time or, or how you're living your life, I, I know that there, there's this kind of squirminess of, well, da-da-da-da-da. And, and I know mentally some of us are just immediately filled with justifications for how we live, as if we're under attack. I'm not attacking you. I'm not attacking you. I don't think Paul is attacking you. I think he is exhorting you. And that's what I'd like to do today with you. I would like to exhort you. That's, that's how he ends. He says, Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, there are obligations in life that are going to require you to perform all kinds of work. You know? Yesterday I saw some of you at work. I saw Millie at work yesterday. Yesterday I I saw some of you at work. Throughout the week I see some of you at work. Most of you I don't see at work, but I trust you're working. I don't know, I went by Ryan's shop and they were all playing on snowmobiles this week. I'm not not sure, but I trust they do. I've seen them at work before. I know what happens. There are obligations on this earth that require us to work and those are God-given stewardships and those are important, right? But as, you're, as you are performing these obligations, understand, you are supposed to always, at all stages of your life, at all periods of your life, you are always supposed to be abounding in work for the Lord. It's not a side project, but sometimes it will feel like a side project, doesn't it? Sometimes, you know, you'll have to buckle down and do things on the earth here. Things that seem 
pointless except to pay the bills or whatever. But you, even as you do that, you are called to be abounding in work for the Lord. Always. Why? Well, Ephesians tells us. When you were saved, you became Christ's workmanship. Created for good works in Christ Jesus that we should walk in them. And when I share these things with you, when Paul shares these things, it's not some attempt to judgmentally tell you, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong. Now, if you feel that, pray. Because the Spirit of God inside of you is the God who will judge you whether you're doing it wrong or not. That's not my job. <laughs> well, uh, trust me, when I go home this afternoon, I will not spend 30 seconds at the dinner table thinking about whether or not you're doing it wrong. Not unless I really see you doing it wrong. Then I'll come tell you, okay? But you should be challenged by these things. And you should ask yourself, am I living my life trusting that my labor is not in vain in the Lord? Or am I giving my labor to vanities that are dust to dust and ashes to ashes and missing the real call of work in a man's life or in a woman's life? Now I know that I'm called to this and this and this on the earth. But what is my calling as a Christian? What am I truly supposed to be about? Not easy things. Now as we transition here to the Lord's Supper, I want to address just in closing, and I hope this is an encouragement to you, some of you might wonder, and I get this question, I got this just a couple weeks ago, what about those who die? If we don't get a resurrection body until the return of Jesus, then what happens to us when we die? Are we just unconscious somewhere? Like, is it like when I go to sleep at night and I wake up and... I almost said six hours, but usually I wake up after three hours now. So, But all that time's passed and it hasn't felt like anything. Is that what happens to us? Um, and I want to leave you with a couple of encouragements. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul makes the argument that he doesn't have to fear death. And he says this, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. In other words, I don't have to fear death. When I die, I will not go to some oblivious, unconscious space awaiting for the return of Jesus to revive me back to life. I won't have a resurrection body until the return of Christ. Same Paul. Same church he's writing to. Different letter. But I will be with the Lord. This is Jesus' assurance to the thief on the cross. He doesn't just say, Someday you will be with me in paradise. What does he say? Today, today you will be with me in paradise. And finally, in Luke 16, there is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And it's all about the reality of torment or the comfort of heaven to those who die even before the return of the Lord Jesus. And the warning about the rich man who is in torment the warning should be taken seriously by all of us. Yeah. You know, he is told in the story, you had your nice things in life and you spent all your money and you did all your nice things, but Lazarus had none and now he is in comfort 
in a place called in the story Abraham's bosom, Abraham's chest, the resting place of God's people? I don't know. But you are in torment. You are in anguish. And the rich man says, all right, if there's no rescue from the torment for me, can you please send Lazarus? They'll recognize Lazarus. Send Lazarus back to my brothers who are still alive to tell them about how real this place is. Because if they see Lazarus, then they'll believe because they know he's, he's dead. If they see him, and he, then they'll believe and they'll avoid this. And, and what, what is he told? He said, they, they have Moses and the prophets. They can believe them. It's this. They have the word of God. He said, no, no, no. But if you send Lazarus, they'll believe him. And what's he told? I tell you the truth, you know. If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen even if a man rises from the dead. And we know that to be true because that is the world that we live in. Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. And it didn't happen in secret. It didn't happen quietly. And the whole world has heard about it. But they don't believe. If we believe, it will transform our life. As uh, the men come forward for the Lord's Supper this morning, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I am convicted um, by the words from 1 Corinthians 15. I am, my own heart is pierced by the side of the sword of your word that uh, points inward back to me. I, I seem to be more afflicted by it than anyone else around me as I open your word and I'm cut to the heart of who I am as a man. And I feel all the challenge to be something other than I am. And sometimes, Father, I feel so immovable and so hard-hearted, I wonder at your patience with me that you would still want anything to do with me. It seems so slow, your work in my life at times, as if it's almost imperceptible entirely. And yet gradually as I look over the course of my life, I thank you for your presence. The way you shape and humble a man. The way you redeem the life of a sinner. And I know that work, that fellowship that I have with you, came on the back of your son Jesus Christ. And so now we remember the work that he's accomplished for us at the cross. And we express our gratitude to be recipients of your promises. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.